We have said before that Acts 1-8 really serves as an outline for the entire book of of Acts. And we see it playing out because uh, Acts 1-8 says that you'll be witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And we see it playing out because in chapters 1 through 7, the gospel was preached in Jerusalem. And chapter 8 shows believers under the threat of persecution taking the good news of Jesus to Judea and Samaria. And then chapter 9 records a monumental event in the history of the church, the conversion of Saul of Tarsus. This is a huge event. In fact, because of the conversion of the Saul of Tarsus and what the Lord did and how he directed him, There's a big reason why we're here today in the West sending missionaries around the world. But that's a whole whole different story. But this is a monumental occasion. Saul, who was later known as Paul, he would be God's apostle to the Gentiles. And he would lead the church in spreading Christianity to the ends of the earth, which is the last part of Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Therefore, from, from this point on... Paul, more than any other person, is the predominant figure in chapters 10 through 28. It's not the only one talked about, but, but uh, the, the story kind of centers around him and his ministry for the most part for the rest of the, of the book. And, and the reality is no one was better suited to the task of taking the gospel to the Gentiles, to the uttermost parts of the earth, more than Paul. Uh, He was a a real Jew if there ever was one. He was a native of Tarsus, even though he was Jewish by blood. uh, And being from Tarsus, he was thoroughly acquainted with Greek culture. He he was a citizen of 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 Rome. He was trained in a trade so that he could support himself as he traveled and ministered. He had studied the, the Old Testament scriptures and was, I mean, he knew them backwards and forwards. Uh, he had all these gifts and abilities that made him uniquely gifted to do this work. But before Christ could use this highly gifted man, he first had to transform him. Isn't that true? That's true for all of us. But little did, did Saul know what lay ahead for him on the road to Damascus. So we're going to read um, a big part of Jap- chapter 9 tonight, but I'm going to read about the, the first part about his encounter with Jesus. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to read from chapter 9, uh, going through ver, uh, verse 9 of chapter 9. And then I'm going to skip over to Acts 22 and then skip to Acts 26. And the reason I'm doing that is because this, this event is so monumental that it's actually recorded three different times in the book of Acts. Uh, this is the, the time when it happened. Then the other two times are when, are when Saul later on is telling the story of his conversion. And in each of those two uh, different situations, he fills in a little bit different details about the event. And so that as we read all three of them together, we get the biggest, the clearest picture of everything that took place on the road to Damascus. So we'll pick it up in verse 1, chapter 9 of the book of Acts. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. 
The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. Now I'm going to skip to verse, or chapter 22, verse 6. Paul is speaking again. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord, I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting, he replied. My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. What shall I do, Lord, I asked. Get up, the Lord said, and go into Damascus. There you'll be told all that you have been assigned to do. My companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. Now to verse, chapter 26, verse 9. I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was, was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Again, this is Paul speaking uh, this time before King Agrippa. He says, uh, and that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priest, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vo vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. On one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priest. By the way, it's interesting that he says foreign cities, plural there, which indicates that this was probably not the only trip Paul had taken to another city to do what he was doing. This is just the time... Uh, Luke is telling of this instance because of what happened on the way to Damascus. He said, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven brighter than the sun blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goats. Then I asked, who are you, Lord? I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people and from the Gentiles. I'm sending you to them to open their eyes and, to, and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Now, we know that before this, this incident, we do know, remember we talked about the great revival that was going on in Samaria and many, many people were getting saved and it was a great, powerful revival being led by, by Philip the uh, evangelist. But apparently from what we can tell, what was going on and what happened in Samaria did not concern Saul at all. And the reason for that would be because they were not considered Jewish. So he didn't care if those people started following this Jesus. He didn't care about that at all because to him he was trying to protect the purity of the Jewish faith and trying to stamp out this, this new sect and this new belief system from infiltrating into the synagogues of the Jews. Uh, however, the, 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 what happened was, you remember when the persecution broke out, Philip went to Samaria, but there were other believers that scattered all, other, all around the world in other uh, directions. And there were some who, who went north, probably through Galilee. And we know that uh, later on in, the, in this chapter, we see, we're told that the church was, had peace in Galilee, is specifically mentioned. So we, we, we know that some went there and they preached the gospel there. And, and some of them went on to Damascus. 
Now, Damascus was the oldest and most important city in, in Syria. And it, it seems to have had a very large Jewish population at this time because verse 2 tells us uh, it's, it speaks of synagogue, synagogues in the plural. So there, was a, there were enough Jewish people there that, to support multiple synagogues. And Saul must have heard, at least heard rumors that the scattered believers were up in Damascus and they were having success preaching the gospel in the synagogues there. So that leads us to this great event that, that was so important that, as I said, is recorded three times in the book of Acts. We know that Saul, some of the others who had joined in the persecution that, was, uh, that broke out in Acts cha chapter 8, verse 1, they may have lost their zeal against Christians. Maybe they had backed off a little bit on the persecution, but not, Paul, not Saul. He, it we're told, he was still breathing out murderous threats. Uh, and later, we told, we read there in one of the other accounts in Acts chapter 22, I believe it was, he told about how he voted for their deaths when they were put to death. And when it says he was breathing out murderous threats, the, the literal translation is actually breathing in. Uh, and it's a Greek participle that's, that indicates that's, uh, how, that something had become characteristic and continuous. In other words, Saul created an atmosphere around him of threats and murder that was so pervasive that he was constantly breathing it in. So it was this self-feeding hatred uh, of, of Christianity. And in the same way that oxygen enables an athlete to keep going, it was this atmosphere around Saul that he created that kept him going. As he, you ever, you ever been so angry at something that the more you thought about it, that you just got you fired up and then later you kind of calm down and then you remember it again and it gets you rolling again. This is what Paul was doing that every time he thought about these Christians, that hatred and that anger and that zeal just rose up in him and he was constantly creating this atmosphere which, which kept him moving forward in this persecution. Now, the problem for Saul was that most of the believers had left Jerusalem. So if he was going to stamp out this new belief system, this new sect of Judaism as he saw it, uh, he was going to have to go elsewhere to do it. So Saul went of his own accord to the high priest, probably Caiaphas, most likely the same man who's been there this whole time, and he asked for official letters to the synagogues of Damascus, giving him authority to arrest any of, quote, the way. Men or women, didn't matter to him to bring them, by the way, it indicates that uh, that even though the, the law of Moses uh, valued women, Pharisees very much devalued them. But, but, but it tells us that in the early church, both men and women, God was using them in great ways. And so Saul wasn't just saying, I'm going to get these men. He was like, I'm going to get the men and women because they're both being effective in what they're doing. And so he's, he's got these orders to bring them bound as prisoners to Jerusalem. By the way, the high priest was probably thrilled that he had somebody volunteer to do the dirty work and he didn't have to do it himself. Well, for him to take them back, it would mean a trial before the Sanhedrin and very likely a death sentence, just like what happened with Stephen. And it says that he was going with the authority to arrest any of the way. Now, the way is that it's actually a very interesting title for the believers, one which they'd accept. This is really 
the first title that's officially given in the book of Acts for the church, for Christianity. It was called the way. And they, they would accept that because they're saying, well, Jesus is the way of salvation. Jesus is the way of life. But I find it very interesting when we read this that we as Christians were known for our way of life long before we were known for our theology. See, what we try to do, we define ourselves now. Uh, we say, well, you're a Christian. That means that you believe this is right, this is wrong. And you say, I believe this, I believe this, I believe that. But more than that, the early church was, was, was really recognized and known for the way that they were living, which tells us that it's not just about what we believe. Right belief, biblical belief is important, but belief without living it out is useless. That's what James says, faith without works is dead. And, and so it's very interesting, you know, and, and I ask myself, I can't help but ask myself in today's world, is the church more known today for what we're against or for how we live? That's a question I think that, that we have to wrestle with sometimes in our lives. Well, anyway, Saul, he began his journey to Damascus to attack the followers of Christ living in Damascus. Now, Damascus was about 140 miles northeast of Jerusalem, but it was about 200 miles by road in those days because it wasn't just a straight shot. And, and he's traveling there, and it's a multiple-day journey. And, and, uh, and on the, probably the last day of his journey... As he's nearing the end of it, a light from heaven unexpectedly flashed like lightning around Saul. And as he told King Agrippa, it continued to shine around him with a light brighter than the noonday sun. And Saul, who was, who was probably walking, he recognized the light as, as beyond the ordinary. He, he knew that this was supernatural. He knew something big was going on here. So he fell down to the ground prostrating himself. In, 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 which was a normal method of showing uh, worship and reverence in a situation like that in his culture. And then he heard a voice. And the voice said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Now, it's something that we, we don't see in the English here, but Luke, in referring to Saul, every time he used the word, uh, he, he mentioned his name, always uses the Greek form of his name, which was Saulos, S-A-U-L-O-S, Saulos. But when Jesus spoke to him, he used the Aramaic form, which is Saul, S-A-O-U-L, which the, the book of Acts is careful to preserve here. And, and later, Saul uh, confirms that Jesus was speaking to him in Aramaic. He was making it very clear, listen, uh, I know you, I know I'm speaking your native tongue, I'm talking to you in your language. And when he speaks to him, Jesus repeated his name twice, which is significant because you compare this with how God sometimes addressed men in the Old Testament. In Genesis 22, 11, uh, uh, the Lord called out to Abraham and he said, Abraham, Abraham, twice. And then when God spoke to, to, to Jacob in a vision of the night in Genesis 46, he said, Jacob, Jacob. And then we all know in Exodus 3, 4, when Moses went to the burning bush, the very first thing that God said to Moses was, Moses, Moses. 
It's this pattern of the call of God when he's speaking to these, these men of God, of repeating the name twice, getting their attention, helping them to understand this is a big moment that's going on. And this would make Saul realize that this voice he was hearing was not the voice of an ordinary man. Saul knew the Hebrew Bible very, very well, and he recognized that this had to be a divine moment before God. However, he heard the voice, the question he heard confused him. He said, he said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul's thinking, who was he persecuting other than the Christians? So he asked, who are you, Lord? Now, some take that when he says the word Lord, to, to, they take it to mean, say, it was like saying, who are you, sir? But uh, using the word Lord merely as a term of polite address, which which sometimes the word that was used there could be used in that way. But in response to the obvious supernatural moment that was taking place around him, it, it, it can be no other, have no other meaning. The word can only mean divine Lord. He recognized he was talking to God in this moment. And the answer came at once. I am Jesus whom you are per persecuting. And the, there's, an, there's an emphatic on I and, and on you. He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Now, you need to understand something here because Saul being a Pharisee, it was very common in um, the, the, the days of Jesus in this first century that very uh, devout Jews like Pharisees, they would, they would uh, pray. Uh, uh, okay, let me, let me go back. Uh, Ezekiel was a, was a very revered prophet, a, a Jewish prophet, and you remember he had the vision of the glory of God, the, the wheel and the wheel and all these different things. And, 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 and it culminates in Ezekiel's vision of, of seeing the, the, the light of the glory of God. Uh, but he never saw the, the face of God. He saw the glory of God and, uh, shining around. And, and it was very common uh, for devout religious Jews, including the Pharisees, very likely could have been the, the Saul's uh, manner of prayer, but they would often meditate on that very passage and they would pray and, and pray and say, Lord God, you know, let me see this vision. Let me open my eyes. Help me see what Ezekiel saw. But ultimately they hoped that in seeing this vision that they would get past that and they'd be able to see the face of God. And Saul, just like many of these others, probably longed to be like the prophet Ezekiel and see a vision of the glory of God. And, and maybe, maybe he'd be the one to be able to see the face of God. And suddenly, here he is. Maybe he's even praying that very prayer on his way to Damascus. And suddenly, he has a vision of God's glory. The, the light of God, the glory of God, which is brightness of God, is, a, is a really the best translation we can give. And, he, and he, he sees the light of God, the glory of God, uh, uh, just opens up in front of him. And he sees, he actually sees the face of God. And the face was the face of Jesus of Nazareth. Listen, you need to understand, suddenly Saul's world is turned upside down and inside out. Terror, ruin, shame, awe, horror, glory, and terror again swept over him. Suddenly, everything he had been taught had both been confirmed and overturned at the same time. The law and the prophets had come true. But the way that he understood the law and the prophets had been torn into little tiny pieces and then put back together in a totally new way in an instant. 
It showed him that the God whom he had loved from childhood, the God for whose glory he had been so righteously indignant, the God in whose name and for whose honor he was busy rounding up those who were declaring that Jesus of Nazareth was Israel's Messiah, that he was risen from the dead and that he was Lord of the world. It showed him that the God he had been right to serve, that he had been right to study, that he had been right to seek in prayer, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel had done what he'd always said he would do, but he had done it in a shocking, scandalous, horrifying way. The God who had always promised to come and rescue his people had done that in person, in the person of Jesus. This is mind-blowing for Saul. All of this is going through his mind and he's realizing everything that I thought was right and yet it was wrong at the same time. Yes, God is coming. The Messiah is coming. And I thought it was going to be somebody besides this Jesus. I thought he was a, an imposter fooling people and I was wrong. As he lay there in the dust, Saul must have been reeling from the realization that Jesus, the crucified founder of this detested sect, I mean, he couldn't possibly be the Messiah. He was crucified. That meant he was cursed. That's what the Old Testament said. But he's suddenly reeling from the realization that Jesus had been resurrected by God and exalted to divine glory because there he was. Saul suddenly realizes that he was not serving God as he thought he was, but he was opposing him. Saul thought he was persecuting the church. But Jesus said, no, you're persecuting me. You're persecuting the very God that you love, the very God that you long to serve. See, see we call this event a, a conversion. We say this is Paul's conversion. But it was more like a volcanic eruption, an earthquake, and a tidal wave all wrapped into one for Saul. He, he was, and in that, he was changed in a moment. And then Jesus added this. He said, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Or another translation, it is rough, it is dangerous for you to kick against the goads. Now, we don't use the word goads very often. But, you know, an ox goad is what it's referring to. And, and you know, that was a, basically a pointy stick. And that, that was what they would use to herd the oxen and make them go where they wanted to go. And sometimes the oxen... Uh, when, uh, when they were being goaded, they would kick back against the goad because they didn't like being poked. But what happens when you kick back against the, something that's sharp? You, you get hurt. Just, if, just you know, make sure you understand that. So if anybody's ever poking you with something, don't kick at it because it's just going to hurt all the more. And this is what was taking place here. Uh, by, by, by saying this, Jesus recognized that much of Saul's persecution of the Christians was because he, uh, Paul knew he had no answer for their arguments. And in his ignorance and unbelief, it was a reaction by which he was trying to resist the conviction of the Holy Spirit. All of these things, it was the Holy Spirit poking at him saying, can't you see, open your eyes, you know that you, know you don't have answers for this. You know that what they're saying, it, it lines up with Scripture. And, and the Holy Spirit was using it like a man driving an ox. The Holy Spirit had been driving Saul toward the truth of the gospel. 
But he was resisting violently, kicking against the goads. The arguments of Stephen was one of the goads of the Holy Spirit. His final speech and the way he died were goads. The, the spread of the gospel and the response of the believers, watching them rejoice in suffering for the name of Christ, they were goads. The miracles that confirmed the word they were all goads, and in resisting all of these, seeing what God was doing and still resisting them, Saul was dangerously hurting himself. Now, this does not necessarily mean that he was conscious of these being goads, or that he, he may not have even realized that he had no good, good arguments against the, against the believers. He was so full of fury that he could think of nothing but how to stop them. And now that he was faced with the truth, and with Christ, not just as the man Jesus, but as the divine Lord, we're told in chapter 26, he answered simply, or maybe it's 22, Lord, what do you want me to do? You talk about, you, you, this is a change in an instant. He's, he's attacking this belief in Jesus, and now when he finds out this is Jesus, he's saying, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? It shows a complete change in Saul's attitude, which is evidence of genuine repentance on his part, because repentance is a change of mind. We've talked about that before. This is evident in Paul because he changed his mind about everything he thought about Jesus in that moment. So the Lord told him to get up and go into the city of Damascus and It'd be there that he'd be told what he would, what would be necessary for him to do. Jesus actually told more, uh, told Saul more here than what's recorded in verse nine, but it's filled in later in those other chapters that we read, and and, and when he was uh, standing in his defense before Agrippa. Meanwhile, the men who were traveling with Saul stood speechless. Let me give you a modern translation. They, they were scared out, out of their wits. They were scared to death. They didn't know what was going on. Uh, they just heard this noise. They saw the light. They didn't, you know, they could hear a voice, couldn't really understand what was, what was saying, but they were scared to death. And, and they heard the sound of Jesus' voice, but saw nobody, and they fell to the ground, but apparently got up before Saul did. And Saul, it seems, in the middle of all of, all of this, closed his eyes because of the continuing brightness, but he did see Jesus. And then when he got up off the ground, he opened his eyes and he could see nothing. So his traveling companions took him by the forearm and led him into to Damascus. And he was there for three days. No longer the self-confident, self-righteous man, but dependent on others like a child, unable to see. And it says that he neither ate nor drank for those three days. Now, the first day, uh, uh, the way that Jews would count days, they, uh, the first day was the day he entered Damascus. And the third day was the day when Ananias would come to see him. And that gave Saul a day in between to think things over and to pray. And as he waited, he didn't just, he, he says he, he, he just, he did not eat or drink anything, implying that he was holding himself in disciplined readiness for further revelation. It wasn't that he didn't feel like it. It was that he was saying, I have seen something that's changing my life that changes my viewpoint on everything, and I've seen the face of God, and it is Jesus, he is the Son of God, I know who he is now, and he says, now I'm going to fast and pray until I get an answer about what I need to do. You know, Saul's conversion 
teaches a lot of things. One of them is that no one is too far gone, too hard-hearted, or too given over to sin that God cannot save them. I mean, Saul had been the church's greatest enemy. He had positioned himself in direct opposition to the gospel, yet Jesus was able to break through that shell that he had built around himself. He was able to break through the hatred and the, and, and the religious zeal, to, and he saved him. In a single encounter with Jesus, Saul went from storming out of Jerusalem in a huff to stumbling into Damascus in humility. He went from being bent on arresting Christians to being arrested by Jesus. He went from being determined to wipe out the message of Christ to being devoted to the cause of taking that message of Jesus to the ends of the earth. He went from being a persecutor to being persecuted. He went from opposing Christ to preaching Christ. In short, Saul's entire mindset and belief system were turned upside down just like that. If he can save Saul, he can save anybody. Let's read about what happens next. Verse 10, chapter 9. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called to him in a vision, Ananias, yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for, them, for a man from Tarsus named Saul, for he is praying. In a vision, he has seen a man named Ananias come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. So it's very interesting here because what we have here is God's giving Ananias a vision and at the same time, he's given Paul a vision. And so he's, and the vision of, that Paul is getting, or Saul is getting, is that Ananias is coming. So you've got a vision of a vision going on here. Lord Ananias answered, I've heard many reports about this man and all the harm he's done to your saints in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go. This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name before the Gentiles and their kings and before the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it, placing his hands on Saul. He said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he could see again. He got up and was baptized and after taking some food he regained his strength. Saul spent several days with the disciples in Damascus. On the, so on the third day of being in Damascus the Lord Jesus appeared to Ananias who was just an ordinary disciple. Not an apostle, not an officer of the church. And Jesus appeared to Ananias in a vision telling him to go to the street called Straight. That was the main street of the city. Now in ancient times, get this, the, the, in ancient times the, the, the straight street was about 50 feet wide. That's a big road. And it was lined with Corinthian columns. Just to, I mean, this is, this is a major metropolitan area. And it went straight from the west end of the city all the way to the east end of the city. And, and there he was, uh, uh, he, he was to ask uh, at the house of a man named Judas for Saul of Tarsus. Now, we read there that, that Ananias knew who Saul was and knew what he had done. Just put yourself in Ananias' shoes for a moment. And what do you think if you were Ananias and God told you, to go lay your hands on Saul and pray for him, knowing who he was and what he had done, what do you think you might have been feeling at that moment? 
Terror? Yeah, that's probably fair. Anything else? Well, maybe. What else? Okay, kind of like Jonah, not want to go to the Ninevites. Confusion. Yeah, there are probably a lot of different things going through his mind. Right, right. Yeah, that's like he's probably, you know, it's like ready to put a fleece out. Lord, if you really said Saul, then do this, you know. But the, the, the reality was he didn't want to go. Right? I mean, no kidding. Uh, news of, of Saul's mission to Damascus is known. He already knows what he has done to the Christians in Jerusalem. I, I mean, listen, let me put it this way. This would be like God appearing to you and telling you to go talk to a terrorist who's in town who hates Christians. Imagine but when he was still alive, if Bin Laden was in Marion, and God said, Marion, uh, uh, he says to you, he says, all right, in, in Marion, down on Military Street, ben, uh, Osama Bin Laden is there, and I want you to go see him and lay your hands on him. You know, it would have been like, Really? But he obeyed the Lord even though he was afraid of Saul. And, and given, you know, the thing is, I want you to think about this. It's, it's real, I think it's really powerful that Ananias was the one chosen by God because given Saul's selection as a key person in the, in the vast plan of God, you know, we might think that Peter or one of the other apostles, maybe they should be chosen to minister to this important new convert. I mean, this is a big deal. This is an important a pivotal player in God's plan uh, for spreading the gospel around the world, but that wasn't way, the way God saw it. God, God called an unknown disciple named Ananias for this task. And you know what? This has been true throughout church history. All throughout church history, God calls nobodies to do something that's very significant. Like, uh, you probably have never heard of John Stalpitz, but that was the man who helped lead Martin Luther to Christ. Or you probably never heard of John Eglin. He was instrumental in, C in Charles Spurgeon getting saved, who was later known as the Prince of Preachers. You probably never heard of Edward Kimball. But Edward Kimball, he was just a shoe salesman who happened to be D.L. Moody's Sunday school teacher and spiritual mentor who, who, who shaped D.L. Moody's life, who later become, became one of the great evangelists. Or maybe, maybe you've heard of Mordecai Ham. Mordecai Ham was a little-known evangelist who preached the night that Billy Graham got saved. You see, we never know how God might use us to touch a life that will, in turn, touch millions. That's the thing. We've got to be content with playing our part, doing what God wants us to do, and saying, instead of saying, God, I want to be the one that preaches to millions, we need to be content to say, Lord, use me to reach one who will reach others. Yield yourself to the purposes of God and be faithful when he calls. Well, here's Ananias. He's unsure, but the Lord reassured Ananias that Saul was his own chosen vessel. And he uses a word that's literally translated vessel there, which is, which is beautiful because you have, a, uh, you have two different vessels being used by God and they're shaped in different ways and gifted in different ways. Ananias was used by God to reach Saul, to touch Saul, but Saul was gifted and was chosen to carry his name before the Gentiles and, and before kings of the world and before the people of Israel. And moreover, he was told that Jesus would show Saul how much it would be necessary for him to suffer for the sake of his name, 
I, I can't help but wonder, maybe if when he heard that part, that's when Ananias said, oh, okay, I'll go. <laughs> you're you're going to tell Saul how much he's going to suffer? Okay, well, then I'll go then. Yeah, and I don't think he did, but, uh, but it just makes me kind of laugh when I think about it. So anyway, Ananias obeyed. And he went to the house, found the place, and he laid his hands on Saul. You know what? I love this part. He laid his hands on him and he said, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. By this he recognized that Saul was now a believer. He, he said to him, You're not my enemy. You're family. You're family. And he laid his hands on him and prayed for him. And immediately his eyes were healed and he was filled with the Holy Spirit. The physical blindness was gone. But you know what? Praise the Lord. So also was the spiritual blindness. And then being baptized in water, Paul declared his death to his old life. Which, by the way, it's a very significant thing when a, when a Jewish man gets baptized in water. Because somebody who was converting to Judaism, they were the only ones required to be baptized now Paul, or Saul as he still was at this point in time, for him to be baptized is a very significant statement on his part because he had never been required to do that. That was not something that needed to be done. But now he's, it shows that he sees the world completely differently. And so then he ended his fast, took food and regained his strength. And we're told that after that he stayed some days with the disciples in Damascus. Now, nothing more is said of Ananias after this. We never hear of him again. We don't know how he became a follower of Jesus. We don't know anything about him. We, we know nothing about him except what is told in this passage, and that's enough to be a challenge to us. We're told that he was a believer. We, we know that he knew how to listen for the voice of Jesus, that he was prepared to obey that voice, even when it seemed ridiculously dangerous, and that he went where he was sent and did what he was told to do. All that we would be Ananias. Amen. He undoubtedly continued living in humble obedience to the Lord and to his, his word. But this I know. Saul never forgot this godly man who was the first believer to call him brother. Let's keep reading verse 20. And once he began to preach in the synagogues, this is Paul, uh, Saul, that Jesus is the Son of God. All those who heard him were astonished and asked, Isn't this, isn't he the man who raised havoc in Jerusalem among those who call on this name? And hasn't he come here to take them as prisoners to the chief priests? So the, the wonder, the questions are not from the believers. These are from non-believing Jewish people. They're saying, wait a minute, isn't this the guy that did this to them and now he's preaching this? And, and yet Saul, by the way, right there, the greatest testimony for Saul was not his, it wasn't just his preaching that he was in this, and what he was doing when he was preaching the gospel. The, the change, his changed life gave power to his words. Because as he preached Jesus as the Son of God, everybody looked at him and said, wait a minute, this is the guy who was trying to imprison and kill everybody who said Jesus was the Son of God, and now he's saying he's the Son of God? And it caused them to pay attention to what he was saying because his life had been so radically changed. Yet Saul, verse 22, yet Saul grew more and more powerful and baffled the Jews living in Damascus by proving that Jesus is the Christ. After many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him, but Saul learned of their plan. 
Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Well, Saul, immediately after his conversion, after Ananias, after he gets baptized, he becomes part of the body of, of Christ there in Damascus and begins preaching Jesus. Immediately after receiving his sight and spending some time with the believers, Saul went to the synagogue to tell the Jews about Jesus. Some Christians, you know, here's the thing. Some Christians counsel new believers. They say, wait until you're really thoroughly grounded in your faith before you attempt to share the gospel. But I want you to notice that Saul, now we know he spent three years in Arabia learning from Jesus he took time alone to learn about Jesus before beginning his worldwide ministry, but he did not wait to witness. Although we should not rush into ministry unprepared, we need to be ready when you're going into ministry. We do not need to wait before telling others the story of our encounter with Jesus. Well, well Saul, he didn't go to the Gentiles immediately, even though he'd been told he was called to the Gentiles. Instead, as he would continued to do as it became his pattern of ministry, he went to the Jews first, the people of Israel first. He went to the synagogues where he had intended, uh, think about this, he went to the very synagogues where he had intended to search out the believers and send them bound to Jerusalem. However, he shows up in these synagogues Everybody already knows what he's there for, but instead, it, 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 almost knocking them out of their senses, to everyone's astonishment, Saul, filled with the Spirit, repeatedly proclaimed Christ Jesus as the Son of God. The people could hardly believe that this was the same person who raised havoc among the believers in Jerusalem. Well, we're told that Saul was more and more filled with the mighty power of the Holy Spirit. And by divine enablement, he baffled the Jews living in Damascus, confounding and throwing them into, into bewilderment and dismay and confusion. He did this by deducing from the scriptures that this Jesus is the Christ, is the Messiah, is God's anointed prophet, priest, and king. So he began using the Old Testament and showing them uh, the, uh, how all of these Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled in Jesus. And, and it, became, it was such a powerful, spirit-empowered uh, presentation that they, had, they were absolutely at a loss, in, a loss to know how to, to answer it. And after a considerable time, possibly as many as three years, because Damascus is part of the uh, Arabian kingdom, and so the three years that he spent with Jesus probably, it probably starts there in Damascus and ends sometime past. There's, we do know that he left Damascus at one point and came back, and we don't know all the, 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 the timeline of everything, but, but, but probably at the end of all that three years, the the Jews finally got just sick and tired of, of, of Saul and decided that they were going to conspire to kill him. Uh, and so they began, they couldn't find him in the city. They didn't know where he was. Remember, this is a massive city. And so they started keeping a close watch on the city gates because they're going to lay in wait and they're going to kill him. And uh, 2 Corinthians indicates that the governor under King Aretas IV of Arabia cooperated or perhaps was paid by the Jews to help them to find and kill Saul. Somehow, though, we don't know how, but Saul learned of the plot. And Saul's disciples, those converts whom he had reached and whom he was teaching, they foiled the plot, lowering him from the wall in a large flexible, flexible basket, woven of rushes or something similar. Now, I want to say this, and I don't have time to spend a lot of time on this. 
But you know what? Saul went on to do a lot of incredible things in the ministry and serving Jesus, didn't he? As a missionary, I mean, amazing miracles. We're going we're gonna to read all about them in coming weeks as we, as we continue this journey through Acts. But you know what? For Saul to do that, he had to escape Damascus. And what we don't know, we don't know the names of the people that held the rope. Somebody had to hold the rope. And that's still the way it is in the church. There are people in the background, people behind the scenes, people that are holding the rope to get the message out of the city and to get it to places around the world. Somebody's got to hold the rope. That's a great message right there to preach sometime. Who's going to hold the rope? That's a great mission message. I need to make note of that one. Anyway, let's keep reading. Verse 26. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he, was really, he really was a disciple. But Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul in his journey had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. So Saul stayed with him and moved about freely in Jerusalem, speaking boldly in the name of the Lord. He talked and debated with the Grecian Jews, but they tried to kill him. When the brothers learned of this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him off to Tarsus. Then the church throughout Judea, Galilee, and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. It was strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit. It grew in numbers, living in the fear of the Lord. Okay, so Saul escapes Damascus and he heads to Jerusalem. Now, we know he didn't go to Jerusalem until after he spent three years in Arabia. That's why, that's why we, uh, we know that this place, of his, this time of escaping Damascus was near the end of that three years. And uh, arriving in Jerusalem, Saul shows up. Nobody there really knows what's going on with Saul. He hadn't been in, there, been in Jerusalem since he left, three, you know, at least three years earlier. And, uh, and, and he tries to join the, in the church, you know, shows up at worship one Sunday or whatever, and uh, wants to serve in the church. But guess what? They're all afraid of him. Not a shock, really. I mean, they had been firsthand witnesses to what, he, uh, as to, to what he had accomplished, what he had done to the church in Jerusalem. And their first thought was that surely this was some sort of trick. This was some kind of deception. And he was trying to, uh, to kind of get his way in so that way he could identify the members of the church and then later destroy them. They, they basically thought, this guy's a spy. That's what he is. Barnabas, however, was sympathetic and he lived up to his name. Barnabas was very, it's very unlikely that was his real name, but that was the name he was called because Barnabas means son of encouragement. And, and he was an encouragement to Saul. And he stepped in in this situation. And apparently he did some investigation. He had some knowledge about what took place. And he brought Saul to the apostles and explained how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus. He'd heard the voice of God and how he had preached fearlessly in Damascus. Probably even filled them in on the details of how they tried to kill him for, for his preaching about Jesus. And, they, and they, they accepted him in. Now, here's the thing. We don't know how long Saul was in Jerusalem before this meeting took place. But he, here he is. He's a, he's a man without, without any place to belong. The Jews, uh, they, they hate him. He's preaching the gospel. They don't want to hear it. The church, they're afraid of him. But Saul didn't give up. And he just hung in there. And eventually he got plugged into the church there. And he continued to speak boldly and freely in the name of the Lord. 
but he, he spent most of his time talking to and debating with the Greek-speaking Jews who had uh, migrated to Jerusalem. So he, he went to uh, Hellenistic or Greek-speaking synagogues. Now, does anybody remember anybody else who spent some time debating with the Greek-speaking Jews? Anybody remember a name? His name was Stephen. Remember what happened to Stephen? Think about this. Paul, Saul, well, you know, we'll call him Saul still. He's showing up now. It, there's a very good chance that at one point in time, Saul was one of those that was debating Stephen and trying to oppose him in these synagogues. Now he's showing up in the very same synagogues, only now instead of being on their side and, and opposing the, the message of Jesus, he's preaching the message of Jesus. And he's debating them and showing them, proving to them that Jesus is the Son of God. And, and, and you know what? The same response that they had for Stephen was the same response they had for Saul. It roused the anger of the Hellenistic Jews and they tried to kill him. I mean, they would have looked at him as an absolute traitor. They probably looked at him and said, he does not even need a trial, doesn't deserve a trial. He just needs to be dragged outside the city and killed. Well, as soon as the Jerusalem believers heard about this, they took Saul to Caesarea, which was a city northwest of Jerusalem on the coast uh, of the, of the uh, Mediterranean Sea. And they, and they put him on a ship to Tarsus. Uh, and we're also told, uh, Saul, Paul tells us later that Jesus also appeared to him and told him uh, in, a, in a vision or a dream to leave Jerusalem. So he wasn't arguing with them. Uh, but the believers, they didn't send him away because they wanted to, just simply because they wanted to keep him from being a martyr. He was sent out as their representative, as a person qualified to take the gospel to the Jews at Tarsus, which happened to be his birthplace. He's going home with the truth about Jesus. Now, Tarsus was about 300 miles to the north. It's on the very, very, very north shore of the Mediterranean Sea. And it sits on, a plain, on the plains there about 10 miles from the Mediterranean Sea. It was a free city. Well, what that means is that they were, uh, the Roman government allowed them to elect their own officials and make their own laws. Um, it was also a well-known university city. Uh, only a couple of cities, uh, Athens and Alexandria, had more universities, so it was a very well-educated uh, uh, place. And then later he and Silas, Paul and Silas, would go through Syria and through Cilicia because, uh, uh, I didn't tell you this, Tarsus was the most important city in the, in the region of, of Cilicia. And they, would go, they went through strengthening the churches, many, many of which may have been founded during these years because uh, he, from the time he went to Jerusalem to the time he, he, uh, the, and the time he spent in Tarsus, the nearest we can tell, it was about a 10-year period that Saul was working for the Lord, serving God where he was, and God was using that time to prepare him for all the things that were yet to come. Now with Saul gone, Everything quieted down again. Not a real shock. First of all, the Greek-speaking Jews are not trying to kill him since he's not there. But also, the, everybody in the city is thinking, what? Saul's on our side now? Whew. So everything's kind of calmed down. Uh, and Luke, in another brief summary, as he often does in the book of Acts, shows that the church 
throughout the whole, uh, uh, the whole of Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed a time of peace. Strengthened and living in the fear of the Lord and experienced the encouragement of the Holy Spirit and continued to grow. Now, I'm gonna, that's the end of the chapter, but I want to I close tonight by talking about some lessons we learn from, Paul, from Saul's conversion. First one we already spent time on, I'm not going to spend uh, time on now, and that is that no one is beyond salvation. I just want to reemphasize that. I've told the story before, I don't have time to do it tonight, about my father-in-law, how far from God he was, and God saved him. If God could stay, save my father-in-law Steve, if God could save Saul, God can save anybody. There's nobody outside the reach of the Holy Spirit. Second thing I want, you to, men I want to mention to you is that there is no right or wrong way to come to faith in Jesus. Here's what I mean. As Saul traveled to Damascus, he was confronted by the risen Christ and brought face to face with, uh, with the truth of the gospel. And, and we know that sometimes, as, as in Saul's situation, God breaks into a life in a spectacular manner. It's a miracle. It's a revelation from God. And then sometimes people get saved and it's a very quiet experience. Beware of people who insist that you must have a particular type of experience before you're really saved. You know, if somebody says, oh, well, they didn't even shed a tear. They're not really, they're not really saved. You know, listen, everybody is so different. You know, don't you know some people that they just never, they, they just don't cry. And there's some people that if they burn their toast, they cry. You know, I mean, we got, we got this, you know, extreme range. Everybody's different. We're all wired differently. And that's on purpose, by the way, because God wants us to use us in, in different, different ways. So the, the reality is the right way to come to faith in Jesus is whatever way God brings you to faith in Jesus. And so if, it's, if you're having a moment, if you, if you see somebody that gets saved and they're running and jumping and shouting, praise the Lord for that. If you see somebody who comes and kneels quietly and surrenders their life, their life to Christ, then you need to praise the Lord for that. Amen? Third lesson. This is a tough one. I, I'm, I don't have time to really develop and talk about this. Sometimes God's plan includes suffering. He showed Saul the things he would suffer if he followed his plan for his life. Now, the, the thing is, th there's truth in that, but if you don't understand that, if you think, I'm going to get saved and everything is smooth sailing and easy from here on out, then when suffering comes, you're going to face disillusionment and you're going you're to wonder, where is God now? But if you understand that it's in this, the valleys, it's in the hard times, it's in the suffering that we get to know him. There's a greater intimacy in those moments. There's, those are the growing times. I heard somebody say the other day, I, I don't remember who it was or who said it, but it was on a podcast or something. But they said, basically, they said, you know, on top of the mountain, on the very top of the peak, it's bare because nothing grows there. All the growth is in the valley. And that's, that's the way it is for us. It's in, the, it's in the times when we have to exercise our spiritual muscles that our spiritual muscles get stronger. So sometimes God's plan includes suffering. Number four, sometimes God tells us to do things that don't make sense and are risky. 
Ananias was placing himself in a position to suffer and possibly die at the hands of, a number, of the number one enemy of the church. You see things that don't make sense all throughout the Bible. Gabriel, uh, or, or yeah, uh, not Gabriel, <laughs> wrong G, Gideon, when, uh, when he, he gathered this massive army to, to fight the enemies of Israel, God says, no, you got too many soldiers. What? Wait a minute. Did you? I think I misheard you. Did you say too many? And then he pared it down. He sent everybody home that was scared. And he, and he said, okay, I cut down the army. You Lord, we, we, we got a lot fewer soldiers now. You, you good with that? He said, no, you still got too many. And he kept cutting it down until he ended up had, having 300 or so against this massive army. That didn't make any sense. That's a big risk. Telling Joshua and the people of Israel, here's how you're going to attack Jericho. I want you to go around the city don't say a word, be very quiet, and march all the way around the city, and then come back to the camp. Do that again for the next seven days, and then on the seventh day, I want you to march around the city seven times, and after you march around the seventh time, I want you to shout, and then you're going to win the battle. That makes no sense. That's a risky plan. Sometimes God tells us to do things that don't make sense, and are risky. Now, you need to understand, you need to recognize the voice of the Lord because if you come up with a harebrained scan, uh, you know, some harebrained plan and you say, well, I'm going to do it because it's crazy, so it must be of God, make sure that it's God telling you to do it before you jump, uh, you know, before you start cutting down the army that, he, that you have. Well, and the last one. And I love this when God has a plan and a purpose for each of us in fulfilling the mission of God. I, I want to go to Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, because later Paul refers this moment of coming to Christ in Philippians 3, 12, because he said, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Now, that phrase took hold. It's the, the Greek is katalambano. And that doesn't mean anything to you, but it means to, and, and tell me if this doesn't sound like a description of Acts chapter 9. It means to grab hold of and pull down. Can I give you a very modern translation of that word? Bringing it into one of our favorite sports in America, football, it means to tackle. A football team that does not grab hold of and pull down very well doesn't win many games because they're not tackling well. And Paul says that, that Jesus grabbed hold of him. He tackled him on the way to Damascus because Paul was to take the gospel to Gentiles and to the people of Israel. And, and, and I want you to understand this. It's the same for every one of this. The, 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 it said, uh, I, well, I want to read to you from Acts 26. Paul telling the story, he said, now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant as a, and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people, from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from the darkness to light and from the power of Satan to, to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. He's saying, Paul, I tackled you and here's why. And everybody in this room has had an encounter with Jesus Christ. You've had that moment where he tackled you. Maybe it wasn't as dramatic 
probably wasn't as dramatic as, as Saul's. I don't think anybody here has been knocked to the ground with a blinding light and, and had Jesus appear to them and that's how you got saved. It probably wasn't as dramatic as that, but the reality is he pursued you and pursued you and pursued you until the point where you finally, you finally surrendered to him and he grabbed hold of you and he pulled you down, he tackled you, and he did that. He saved you for a reason. He has a plan for your life. He has a purpose for your life. And his plan will be fulfilled by walking in the spirit and allowing him to use us. Now, I want to say this, and we'll close with this. That does not mean it will be easy. You can look at Paul's life and see that. that Paul's life was filled with great suffering. But, but... That's not what we focus on. You know why? Because Paul's life was also filled with tremendous victories. And when suffering comes our way, we, we simply trust him. We hold on to our faith. And we, like Paul, keep pressing on to grab hold of that for which Christ Jesus gra uh, grabbed hold of us. That we tackle that which Christ has, for which Christ has tackled us. And when those times of, come, of suffering come, we're like Paul and we say, for I know that, the, that our, our, our present uh, sufferings are nothing compared to the glory that will be revealed. So we walk through those times of suffering and we say, yes, this hurts. But the victories that, that, are, that, are, that, are, that are won in Christ are far greater. The glory of God that's coming is far greater. So I don't care about the suffering. I'll keep my eyes on Jesus. And I will press on to take hold of, to tackle the very purpose, purpose for which he tackled me. And my friend, when we do that, that's when we reap the harvest. Paul said, he said, we will reap in due time. We will reap. We will reap. But there's an if. Every promise of God has a condition. He said, we will reap. If, I'll give you a modern translation, if we don't give up. You know what that says to me? Here's Dave, uh, modern translation version of that. If we don't quit, we can't lose. That's the only way we lose. Amen? So I encourage you tonight, no matter what you may be going through, no matter what you will walk through in the future, keep your eyes on Jesus. Press on to tackle that for which he's tackled you. And remember that you, if you don't quit, you can't lose. Let's pray together. Father, I come to you right now in the name of Jesus. And thank you, Lord.